0: I don't want
1: Travel through East Texas. Where
2: many fell. Good afternoon. You've got living writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T Hetzel, and today so happy to have John Sales right here in the WCBN studio in person, not via Zoom or anything other mm-hmm. type. I mean, Yay for technology! But it's so good to see you. Good, nice in, to be here. in person, John. Thanks for coming. And also, we have a studio audience. We have Maggie, and we have Phil, and um, and as we're so lucky to have Frank Uly engineering for us, um, John, thanks for being here today. Mm-hmm. Um, John Sales, your latest novel. Um, jamie mcgillivray Mm -hmm. it's a mouthful but Mm -hmm. i love it the renegade's journey out with melville house press Mm -hmm. um thanks also for choosing today's songs for the program i imagine that maybe you and maggie because i heard you were driving here yesterday Mm -hmm. (laughs) were were these the songs that you were listening to on the road trip or yeah,
3: they're on our playlist but uh we we (laughs) were actually listening to uh books on tape of uh, uh, an Irish writer uh, writing um, uh, a book called "We Don't Know Ourselves" about the the last forty years of Irish history.
2: I think I might have seen that title in the latest New Yorker. Yeah, or something. Yeah, it's, yeah.
3: A, it's a popular book. He's and he's a very good writer. His name I can't remember right now. <laughs> no, it's
2: okay. I- Oh, if only I could yeah. come up with it as well. Then yeah. we'd be true friends from the get-go, John. But um but thanks again for being here. And mm-hmm. let's celebrate the book, the novel on the table with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we do that, I'll read a short bio. Although you probably you're you're someone that, that folks know, John Sales. But anyway, well as is convention, mm-hmm. the short bio in the book will be read. John Sales is is an American independent film director, screenwriter, actor, and novelist. He has twice been nominated for the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay for *Passion Fish* (1992) and *Lone Star* (1996), and is the winner of a John D. MacArthur Award. He has written seven novels, the most recent being *Yellow Earth* and *A Moment in the Sun*. So, John, thanks for thanks for being here. Mm-hmm. And um, the Bob Dylan. It felt really right to me when I saw that. I know you said it doesn't matter the order mm-hmm. of the songs or whatnot, but as an intro, when I heard it, it felt epic. Yeah, it's connected. what I like about
3: the song. It's it's like uh, Dylan channeled every book and movie and experience he's ever had that that has to do with the South. You know, going back. 200 years or whatever and stuck them in one song and blind willie McTell, who's a somewhat obscure blues singer he worked him in there too um and it just has a great sound to it but as the song goes on he's just throws another image after another image after another image of you and they all seem like i think i've seen that movie
2: right right and so cinematic in the audio Mm -hmm. of it yeah which is so this connects so much to to jamie McGilliv- the, McGillivray. the <laughs> thank you mcgillivray uh-huh. um because this is um a- This is epic, this novel Mm -hmm. that we have on the table with us. And I'm glad we have two because then we can balance the table.
0: (laughs)
3: Yeah. Yeah. It it starts at the Battle of Culloden in 1746 and it ends at the Battle of Quebec, which is like 15 some years later. So it it covers some territory um, just geographically and in terms of time.
2: Time and geography. Yeah. And imagery Mm -hmm. and cinematic scope. Mm -hmm. Definitely. You bring that to bear. It seems like an all your fiction,
3: yeah, you know, it's it, um, they're very, very different processes. Writing a screenplay than than doing a, a, a book, but uh, use some of the same muscles. And one of the things that I try to do with both of them is to put the audience member, whether it's a reader or a viewer, into the story um, and into the heads of the characters. And and so you're dealing a lot with point of view of, well, who is it that's seeing this? Thing, and are they seeing it for the new time, the first time, you know, or is this something very familiar to them?
2: And do they care about it to what it uh, extent?
3: Or, or understand it. Yeah. Um, and that's in this book very important because two, the two main characters, Jamie McGillivray and Jenny Ferguson, are people who are pretty much ripped out of the life that they thought they were going to lead, sent to the new world when it's very new uh, mm-hmm. to Europeans. And they have to just survive. And so... Um, both of them are kind of savvy in that they, they, they want to get the lay of the land as quickly as possible and say, what role could I have here that will help me at least survive until I can do a little better than survive?
2: Yeah, it's so interesting, this this idea of identity throughout mm-hmm. and how your two main characters, how they have to shift and adapt mm-hmm. uh, and, to survive. And,
3: and And become people that they aren't necessarily at first. Um, play roles that they don't necessarily, you know, know that much about. But, uh, you know, and and, uh, one of the things that when I I went to make this into a book, um, it was originally a screenplay some 20 years ago. And Jenny was a minor character. And as I realized, oh, I'm going to have more time and more room to develop her and see how she gets to the new world, I started thinking about how survival... To this day, for a woman is different than for a man, and especially in you know the seventeen fifties, there's just not that many roles um, for a woman at all. She's also illiterate. Um, She's really smart and really tough, but she is illiterate. Um, Because that would
2: have been the the time of the time and what where what she was born into in Scotland. What are the
3: possible roles where I've landed and and pretty much for a woman? Yeah, she's a she's a poor barefoot farm girl and <laughs> is that uh, what crofter means a I'm crofter is a farm yeah a okay, crofter is okay. a farm a is a little farm community and you know she's she's been in the mud and and she's faded until kind of fate you know does something different with her to end up married to a crofter not necessarily somebody she knows or likes yeah
2: in canada now uh, well she or, ends no. up in canada yeah, but she's yeah. in
3: in the north of scotland at the beginning of it um but then when she comes to the new world she's First thing she does is look for a protector. you know um there just aren't that many roles, right. and so if you can find a protector of some sort, that's what you do.
2: How did she charm you into being from when we're looking back twenty years ago and i there are many characters mm-hmm. that have voices in here. Mm-hmm. Was it important that you had a female lead? As well, even though she's not in the title role, yeah, I, I, she is I, a renegade. I
3: tend to I tend to write in a kind of mosaic way, anyway, so they're not the only two characters in the book. Yes. Uh, so and, how did and, you choose her? Like, um, well, because she did she kept showing up. You know, their 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 journeys were parallel. You just didn't see as much of her, and I got interested in this idea of the you know the difference between a man and a woman surviving. Um, she's not going to get to be a warrior. She's not going to, you know, get to own property um, and any of those things. And so she's basically attaching herself to people and hoping she attached herself to the right person. And sometimes that works out and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes that person is the right person until their orders change and they're not, you know, cooling their heels down in, you know, Martinique in the nice warm sunshine anymore. They get sent to Canada in the middle of the winter, in the middle of a war. Yeah. 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 So, so you know, it was an obvious thing for me of, the, oh, this is a really interesting character to follow and also to get into her head. Because the other thing about Jenny is that um, she's poor, she's illiterate, and she is desperate to learn about the world. She's really, really curious and just has kind of you know, sees these people passing on the way to a battle, on the way back from a battle. And so all she's going to get is secondhand information her whole life and not much of that. And then she gets a chance to, well, yeah, I'm in chains, but that's London Tower. (laughs) Wait a minute, you know, I've always wanted to go to this place, you know, and wow, I'm in Martinique and there's French food and sunshine and mangoes and all these things I, I, because I can't read, I'd only seen a picture of. if I'd even seen a picture of them. So I I thought she was a fascinating character in that there's this duality of, yes, she is put on survival mode, yes, she is brought there as a prisoner, but she's having the adventure of her life, Right. even though sometimes her life is in danger.
2: Yeah, and she sounds fun, (laughs) because even watching you talk Mm -hmm. about her, I know there are scenes where um, then... When early on, when she has to, hit, hit, like, crouch someone's skull, mm-hmm. um, for survival and to get his his weapon, mm-hmm. um, she does it. Yeah, she's. Not, know, I don't she, mean to just say she, fun and then yeah, say no. this example. But. Well,
3: she's fun to write about because <laughs> yeah. she she's not just passive, and she does what she can, and she's got a sense of humor. And uh, it's kind of gallows humor because of the situations that she's put in often, but also and because she's Scots, um, yeah. You realize that um, wow, um, when she has to, she learns a little English, and then she improves it, and then she learns French. Um, you know, so she had these capacities that were never going to be called on. Right. You know, being poor and a woman you know with two strikes against her it was very unlikely she was going to get to use any of this stuff in her and all of a sudden she needs it to survive and she's she's actually pretty good at it
2: and i love how you mentioned that she kept coming presenting herself as you were moving through because you returned to the screenplay mm-hmm. because you had done all of this research you mm-hmm. had even i think from learning about it john please jump in because mm-hmm. this is your life not mine like you scouted locations you traveled yeah
3: the idea originally came from the scots actor robert Carlyle, and he had kind of gotten out of the blue gotten in touch with me and said well i have this great idea for a screenplay about a you know a jacobite supporter who's defeated at the battle of culloden and instead of hanging him at the last minute the english transport him to the new world and he escapes but then is captured by indians and has adventures with them um I wrote a screenplay on spec, and then Maggie and I got to go scout in the north of Scotland in the Highlands with Robert Carlyle, which was really fun, and then come back and scout some of the other places that the only place that's in the book that I I haven't gotten to, to look around with the idea of making a movie there is Martinique.
2: I was just going to wonder if that... Yeah, I, I
3: hope there's a, a Martinican book festival or something that they can invite me to, because uh, oh. I'd love to go there, having done a lot of research about it. And
2: then um, and bring the book there, too. Yeah. yeah.
3: yeah. yeah. Also, what happened with Jenny is, um, one when I decided to make it into a novel and went deeper into the research, um, I was able to do things like, oh, I think I can track down some of the ships that took these these people in chains to the New World as prisoners and as indentured servants, and, and I found the the logs of several of the ships, and one of the ships that brought Jacobite prisoners, both men and women, uh, to the Caribbean. Um, with the idea of dropping them off in Jamaica and putting them out in the cane fields as slaves, um, was in fact, captured by a French privateer, and they were freed on the island of Martinique. And I said, well, that's how Jenny gets to the new world.
2: So let me ask. So this part was not part of the screenplay. It was when you were thinking about Jenny, when she was presenting yeah. herself more. It came, it came
3: and this out is of the, the research in the novel. for the book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And what I find you know, generally in, in uh, you know historical research is... The real story is so much more interesting <laughs> and complex than anything I could make up and certainly more interesting and complex than the usual Hollywood version of it.
2: I, I say yes and agree mm-hmm. wholeheartedly without meaning any offense because yeah. I know that you've well, also – you're also, a storyteller yeah, and you, Hollywood has been yeah. good for that yeah. too. Yeah, and, and
3: think of trying to squeeze these stories into two hours.
2: Imp- you know, impossible. Impossible.
3: <laughs> impossible and And mostly, it's like, "Well, does the lead actress look good in the clothes? Well, we're doing that period. And anything <laughs> that that really we don't like about that period, we just get rid of. You know, so very often what you get is a screen story set in a certain period, but the people think and act like people would today. Right, um, and that's more familiar to the audience, so it can be very, very popular. And that's right. you know, that's a you know, almost always they're not speaking the language they would be, you know, and the audience just says, "Oh well, yeah, I'm not going to watch it in French, right. even if they would be speaking French." You know, or and,
2: subtitles uh, in and uh, yeah, out. Or, or so
3: Americans that's... don't like to read subtitles.
2: I know, you know? Um, what's wrong with us. What? <laughs> well, it <laughs> we're just so was conditioned. Conditioned.
3: not. You know, I think American public started watching movies that were subtitled in a way because they would watch a French movie when it was a silent movie and they would just all you had to change were, were the titles right. and that was a very small part of the movie they, they tried to make them with a, a, as few titles where you had to read as possible and if you watch them today you say boy those people read slowly because they're on the screen for a long long time <laughs> right. um, so they you know their movie going experience was never in another language even though those, those actors might have been speaking Chinese or French or whatever. Uh, And then, of course, when talkies came in, um, foreign movies kind of disappeared for a long time. So this idea that um, you were going to have to read subtitles was a very new one. And to this day, I think it's less than 3% of the population will willingly go to a subtitled movie.
2: Because it feels like work instead yeah, of entertainment. Yeah. And, and it is a
3: little, your, your eye is bouncing up and down and you know, uh, it is a little distracting, yes. you know, although, you know, kids to now today can multitask. Kids so I would today. think they could, I, I think they could handle it, but they're also probably looking at something on their other, their devices. Phone, other devices at the same time. So there's four things going on right. at the same time.
2: How, how did you manage then? Cause it's, was meaningful to you to include actual like the scottish dialect Mm -hmm. or and and other languages Mm -hmm. like some french um i know urs is mentioned but i don't know i anyway like why is that important to you in the novel
3: for, for for one thing is uh jamie survives partly because he's a linguist um, he, when we meet him, he's already a go-between between the Jacobites who were in exile in France and in Scotland. So he speaks French, he speaks Irish, which is Scots Gaelic, he speaks Scots, which is that Robert Burns thing that you have to, you know, really work hard to understand, he speaks English. Uh, and he even speaks a little Latin because he's been a law student. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, in the course of the, the 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 story, he learns Leni Lenape, which is the Delaware Indian language. Um, and very often, if you read about the the conferences that the Europeans and the Indians would have together, it wasn't a one-to-one translation. It was okay. Well, here's we have a Mohawk guy who speaks English, and he spent some time living with the Lenny Lenape people. And but the English speaking guy is actually German, you know, and so there's another guy who speaks, yeah, so you might have five people. To get the word back and forth, so even with people who are trying, not, and this is
2: politics, yeah,
3: and and land sales and and treaties and stuff like that. So even if they're trying to be honest with each other, it's difficult,
2: like a game of telephone. Yeah, and
3: then very often one side or both sides had an agenda that they wa- that was secret or they were kind of lying about. Um, so I, I thought it was important for the 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 reader to get that feeling of okay. To, to survive there, it would be really good to speak a couple different languages, to understand what's going on. In, in fact, there's a couple parts in the thing where Jamie realizes he's, he's brought into play as a translator for the Lenny Lenape when he becomes part of their tribe. And every once in a while, he realizes, oh, I think these two English guys understand some French. So even though my Lenny Lenape isn't very good, I'm going to switch to that when I talk to the chief because they're going to, you know, hear what I really think right. about them. And I wanted that in there. So I, I did a lot of um, listening um, for the Scots um, to, to some Highland people, you know, mm-hmm. On which is a great thing about, you know, the Internet now is you can get people who not only play wonderful Highland fiddle, but also are from, you know, the north and will... Um, do like I'm going to do 12 sessions where I teach you how we speak up here and you know and and then another person has a you know, a video about how to skin a weasel. Right, right, right. <laughs> and there are three of them, and they're actually very good. If I ever need to skin a weasel, I know where to go.
2: John Sales' recommendations, everyone. Yes, <laughs> We'll take a short break, and then we'll come back. Okay. To- today on Living Writers, John Sales is here. Jamie McGillivray, uh, The Renegade's Journey, the book, the novel, on the table with us. I'm T Hetzel. We've got Frank behind the glass. We'll be back. welcome back if you're just tuning in i'm so glad you did today john sales is here um in the studio his novel (laughs) novel what can't i say right today jamie mcgillivray the renegade's journey on the table with us and um and again uh john john picked the songs for today's show Mm -hmm. um so uh dolly parton it's It's hard to fade out on her. (laughs) Yeah.
3: I mean, she's a really good songwriter, and I'm always interested in people who who, who do other people's materials and write their own songs and make them their own. Because
2: she's a storyteller. Yeah,
3: and she's got that great voice, and she comes from a real storytelling tradition. Um, And... uh, and also just her songs aren't all the same you know she 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 can sing ballads, she can sing you know these kind of anthems, she can mm-hmm. sing upbeat stuff um, and just the kind of the spirit of the person comes through in her singing
2: um, when we were at the break, you mentioned how you had a chance to act in a movie with her. Yeah, I, I was
3: in a movie called Straight Talk, and uh, I, I play a, the guy who runs a dima dance hall, and I fire her before the opening credits. So I cruel. don't have to day, uh, spend one day with her. And she, she was just terrific. She was just a terrific person to work with.
2: So you're, so the reason why I mention this too, John, is because so you're, you're an actor as well as mm-hmm. a director, a writer, a screenplay writer, yeah. a novelist. I, I, I
3: believe I'm the only actor who ever had a scene with Tupac. Shakur and Dolly part, not in the same movie, but uh,
2: yeah, that would have been something. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but but in that, like, because you had mentioned the phrase "natural actor" mm-hmm. or so. So, how is it? Like, do you are you calling upon some similar like things that are in you that? Is part of the creative process for when you're writing the same yeah, as when you're creating on, as an actor on screen? I, th- I
3: think it's been a big advantage that I've been an actor. One of the things you have to do as an actor is to get inside the head of your character. And there's a bunch of questions you should be asking when you're getting inside the head of your, your character. One is, uh, when is this? Is this before the women's movement? Is this before Freud? Is this before people knew the world was round? Um, you know, and, right. and you may be in ancient Greece in, in whatever you're playing. So and, and, and what is the world of thought that you're carried? What's your class? Are you educated? Are you not educated? You know, are, are you an outsider? Are you an insider? You know, what is your agenda? What is your belief system? Mm. and when i when I write something for four movies, I give every actor in in the thing that i'm going to direct a bio that I write, which might be you know a half a page if it's a small part, it might be four pages if it's a big part, and it's stuff that's not necessarily you know, in the script, but I think will help the actors. And, because and,
2: you know it's in the script, like behind the script, yeah, behind the words. Yeah,
3: but also it helps me think through the characters more deeply. And every once in a while I say, oh, you know, if that's who they are, maybe they'd act a little differently in this scene, you and, know, now you that can, I know this about them.
2: And you've got to trust that.
3: Yeah, you have to trust that. And, and you know, you want, you want the actors to be able to, not that I ask them to improv, but they should be able to stay in character and go to Starbucks and order something something in character, you know, or, or not go to Scarbox because their character would never go there. (laughs) Um, But, but, you know, having been an actor, you, when you go from character to character in something like Jamie McGillivray, um, okay, well, this person thinks differently. The language, even not, not just their dialogue, but the way they see the world is going to affect the prose. And how complex it is, and the sentence structure and things like that, or what their eye lights on. I I got to be in two different um, productions of of Mice and Men, and in the first one, I played Candy, who's this old guy who's missing a hand, and he's you know this is before there was Social Security, and he's worried he's just gonna starve, you know, when he can't work around the bunkhouse anymore. And then in a later production, I played Lenny, who is is this you know guy who's very very simple, and he really doesn't understand much what's going on, and he he likes soft things, so he likes catching mice, and he's like one know, of cats.
2: the yeah. main characters. Yeah,
3: um, but because he's he's less limited mental capacity, there are things he just doesn't see or hear. So when he walks into the same exact bunkhouse as the other character did, his eye lights on different things, some dialogue he doesn't even hear, and other things his ears prick up because, oh, that might be something I'm interested in.
2: Right, right. So,
3: so it's the same exact hermetic world of the play. It's never going to change. But if you're playing those two different characters, it's a totally different experience from the inside out. Um, and so when I'm writing one of these books and you, you know, I've all these characters who are pretty minor characters here. Um, what I, what I feel like is they're there for a piece of the big story, but they only have their agenda and they may not even meet Jamie or know who he is, but there is an important part of the story. So one of the characters in this. And it's
2: their, and it's their agenda as well as you as the writer's yeah. agenda. Yeah. Right. But you're conscious of. Yeah. that character's own agenda as well Yeah,
3: there, there's a character named alf who, who he's basically a custodian he's a janitor um you know in in uh, the area of london where all the barristers hang out and the, the bar and uh which is you know and, and it was the temple bar and it was a archway and on that archway if you looked high enough up above the statues were these spikes and that's where heads that rolled were put up for everybody to see for weeks or months or f- until they turned into you know skulls and uh they haven't been beheading people during his tenure as a janitor there. And all of a sudden, he's told, We have these two heads coming today and they need to be displayed up on those spikes. And he said when he took the job, There won't be any climbing, will there? Because he's afraid of heights. <laughs> well, that's his agenda. And that's what he he's not worried about who these guys were, right. whether they should have been beheaded or not. He's worried about, Am I going to be able to get up there? And I've never done this before, impale these two heads. On spikes and get down without getting dizzy and falling or making a, a fool of myself. Um, so it is part of the story that these heads and we've we've seen the guys killed in an earlier chapter. Um, it is part of the story, but from his point of view, it has nothing to do the, with Jamie McGillivray or the French and Indian War or, Jenny, or, or... <laughs> the Jacobite Rebellion. It has to do. Can I can I get that high?
2: So for him, did you have a, when you're, creating this then did you have Mm -hmm. a bio for him like is that part of how you work with your process Yeah,
3: a short one but Mm -hmm. you know we know that he's got a wife and when they moved in from dagaham to to london he made sure (laughs) it was a a first you know um a one-story edifice that he was moving into because he would never have to climb up (laughs) and the other part of him that's important is he loves the job the custodian thing is fine he can do all that but he loves the vocabulary and he hears these barristers use these words, and he comes back and he tells his wife, guess what I learned? This great word in you, you know what it means? You know, so, yeah. so it can be a very simple one like that.
2: But that is so wonderful that you also give a character who is definitely a very minor role mm. in this, but also something, not only something that makes them... Um, Stubborn or quirky or mm-hmm. whatever it is, but also something that makes them wondrous as a human being, like loving something mm-hmm. about the language and poetic, mm-hmm. like being able to hear that and mm-hmm. and giving it to someone who doesn't have like who isn't one of the power brokers within. You this know, if, you, if
3: you're if you are literally a spear car- carrier and let's say you're doing Julius Caesar and you're new to the company and they've got you literally standing behind these guys making these long speeches. Um if you're really acting, you shouldn't be thinking about... Your feet, oh, your sandals. Doing, yeah, he's doing a good job today. No, but but yeah. the character should be thinking about his feet. Or uh, when is he going to stop talking because I have to take a leak.
2: Right, exactly. Or
3: whatever it is. Yeah. Or I didn't especially like Caesar either, so I'm pretty glad he's dead. Mm. And you may not show it on your face, but, but you you're in the play. And, you and you're in the play as the guy. Right, right. Um, and that, it's always been fascinating to me is you know, good actors will find that thing that keeps them in the play, even when they're not talking.
2: And I was just thinking here, um, because the next thing I want to ask you is about process still. Mm -hmm. Um, When you're writing, when we're, when you're writing this novel, John, as you have um, you, we've its obviously got chapters like a traditional novel would, but even within one chapter, we are shifting. We're using white space or negative space mm-hmm. to change scenes and focus sometimes even mm-hmm. different the different perspective of Jenny is right. brought in, right? Um, for you, when you're drafting this, I know yours is an unusual situation, and it also seems quite wonderful to have this screenplay at first that you're working f- mm-hmm. from to to draft the novel as a whole. Um, but are you are you finding that you're writing through their characters and then going back to weave things, or is it something that's happening almost organically as you're drafting, because you, you're mm-hmm. drafting day by day. And- yeah, I, I,
3: for instance, there there are, you know, uh, when they get into the action up. Um, in uh, acadia in canada in the winter when the the beginning of this proxy war that we hear call, call, call the french and indian war really starts up and these two forts are within sight of each other and they've actually been coexisting for quite a while because there was a treaty that they're supposed to and they and they both buy things from the local people who are the acadian people who eventually became our cajuns Um, uh, and, you know, so they're kind of, you know, trying to work it out and they don't exactly party together, but it's like, you know, we're going to send our guys into the forest and cut wood, firewood, and then, uh, they'll be gone by one o'clock. So you can send your guys in so nobody will get into a fight. Um, and then this war, they hear this war has broken out and now they're going to have to like fight each other or kill each other um so there's a lot of cross-cutting from one side to the other and you know in a movie you just you sometimes you plan it one way and then you cut it a different when you get in the editing room and that happens to me in a book sometimes is how how long do we want to stay with jenny and her lieutenant on the french side of this you know thing and then when do we want to go over to the english side um, or to what's happening to Jamie, who's, you know, coming up from uh, Pennsylvania and will eventually get to Quebec at the same time Jenny does. Um, so, you know, that, that kind of stuff does change a little. It's not planned out. But I did have this big structure of what happened historically. To hang everything on, and I knew, and, and this you know, and it was in the screenplay. Oh, Jamie starts here and he ends up here, mm-hmm. and here are a couple places I know he goes in the middle. Jenny, her middle was missing. I didn't do that, it and so to you know yeah. that that becomes a lot of the what's in the novel. Um, but yeah, every once in a while, you you just say, I know how to write this section. I don't know exactly where it's going to go. And the other thing that I do process-wise is, especially with something like this where there's a lot of history, is my my hard and fast rule is you can do one week of research and then you have to sit and write some fiction. Yeah. Because you can lose your momentum so quickly, Um, you know, because you just get fascinated by the history and you keep going deeper and deeper and deeper into it. And you know more and more and more, but you're not moving forward with a novel.
2: Could we... Could we, I think we should take a short break and Mm -hmm. then come back and then Mm -hmm. talk about. A bit about the research mm-hmm. of this because I think that's a, um, a, a big a big part so today on Living Writers John Sales is here in the studio Jamie McGillivray the Renegade's Journey the novel on the table with us out from Melville house thanks for sending the book along so much mm-hmm. and thanks also a shout out to Michael Barson um, too uh, we've got Maggie and Phil and our studio audience and Frank behind the glass we'll be back
1: Bag of muffin gunner's returning home like a hungry runaway. He walks through town all alone. He must be from the fort, he hears high school girls say. His countryside's burning with wolfmen fairies dressed in drag for homicide. They hit and run, plead sanctuary. The holy stone they hide. They're breaking beams and crosses with the spastic's reeling perfection. Nuns run bald through Vatican halls, pregnant, pleading immaculate conception. And everybody's wrecked on Main Street from drinking unholy blood.
2: Good afternoon, if you're just tuning in, you're just in time. Today, John Sales is here on Living Writers, Jamie McGillivray, The Renegade's Journey, the novel on the table with us. Um, John, so... You have chosen um, the boss to include mm-hmm. <laughs> in the song choices.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Talk about an epic. I mean, Lost in the Flood. Um, and, and some of it is, is just that he, he's a great storyteller and some of, some of his songs literally are from having seen a movie and then getting into that world in his head and, you know, coming up with his version of some of something like the same experience. Um, and that, that, which people do
2: with songs all the time. So mm-hmm. it's so cool to hear I didn't know that about him. Yeah. But I'll often hear a song and then it will launch me into this oh, yeah. what the film would be. Yeah.
3: And and that particular one, you know, was lost in the flood, um, to me, it's so much the story of Jenny and and, you know, Jamie and this. Is, How so? Well, in in that, you know, they had these plans. And she didn't have many plans, but and they were more like, okay, this is what my future is going to be. I'm kind of doomed to live this kind of life. He had these plans about, oh, we're going to beat the English, and we're going to put the Stuart Kings back in, and then they will give us our, okay. our family land back, and then we won't be taxmen anymore. We'll be landowners, and we'll be, you know, the middle of McGillivries will be a great clan again. Um, well, it didn 't work out, um, and after that, they are literally just lost in the flood and the flood is life you know i 'm sure the flood is what 's happening in the Ukraine right now for an awful lot of people um, once those those things that you say okay were the, these are the milestones of life that were l you know and this is this is the course that i 'm you know, steering for and then I'm going to have children and then we're going to do this and then we're going to buy a house and all that. Well, when that breaks down um, and people are it's just kind of, wow, you know, what do I do now? And some people go under and some people manage to swim. Um, and a and, lot of
2: people face that recently, even with COVID. Absolutely, this, this absolutely. Breaking it way. just it
3: just freaks people out, and and it's not under your control. And guess what? It never is. But we love that illusion that it is, and sometimes. Things go pretty well for a while, and you think, "Well, yeah, I've got this under control." Well, you don't have it under control. <laughs> it happens to be under control. I mean, but we, it's not because of you.
2: We talk about magical thinking, and yeah. that is a technique even in writing, yeah. or, or or. But I kind of think that's how we all live. But well, no one and I think we faces have
3: to. It. You know, oh, yeah. if, if if we if we kind of lived all the time with how much luck there is or good or bad involved, you just wouldn't do anything, you know, you, yeah. you would just say, okay, whatever.
2: Spinning. Yeah.
3: And, 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 that song is about, you know, people who have, many of them who have just caught this thing where, well, that's where I live in the flood. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, what there's a, it's either in that song or another one of the, you know, the, the poets down here, write Nothing at all. They sit back and let it all be.
2: Okay. Aww. <laughs> you know? Oh wow, that is—I did not know that line. Yeah. I love that from Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. Oh, um, well, just just a really quick, uh, well, a note. It doesn't have to be quick. Whatever you want it to be. John Sales, actually. Um, but thank you for signing, um, a while ago that that letter against the uh, Iraq War, mm-hmm. um, not in our names, mm-hmm. like, um, that. Yeah, you know, you mentioned Ukraine, and so I feel like this is. Yeah, I mean, everyone.
3: Thanks for doing that. you, You, you know, you do these drop in the bucket things, but I think. Um, you know, I remember during the Vietnam War, people would come back from overseas. I didn't have a passport yet, so I wasn't there. But they'd say, boy, you know, I'm, next time I go over, I'm going to have a maple leaf on my right, my Canada. vest, So they think I'm a Canadian yeah. and not an American, you know. And it's hard for me to, to explain of this is not in my name. You know, this, this is not what most of the country wants to have happening. Um, and, you know, that's been true under a lot of You know, people have been running this country. And so I think every once in a while it's important for people to come out and say, actually, this isn't what we want, you know. And that's what, you know, a a lot of big marches are about and that's what petitions are about or whatever. It's just every once in a while you just kind of say, yeah, you know, I may not be doing a lot, but I can at least do this. I can tell you this is not what the people want and I'm one of them.
2: Right, right. And what, currently on campus, John, we have, um, the GO is on strike mm-hmm. our graduate employee organization, mm-hmm. their union, and I'm part of the Leo union. And mm-hmm. so it's also, um, the supporting this in any way that you can mm-hmm. is, 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 yeah. And it's also not in our name. Like the university has its own, um, rhetoric and goals and mm-hmm. sometimes what they're, Putting yeah, out and, there and
3: isn't. and they also, you know, institutions always need to be tested, yes. or they yes. they go bad. Exactly, <laughs> I, I have worse words to say. But um, you know, unless you unless you exercise democracy and unless you exercise, you know, what's fair or whatever, people are going to even without thinking about it drift into some really bad, you know, thinking stasis that doesn't is right. is not human as it should be
2: because the institutions will is to preserve itself instead yeah. of thinking human beings are yeah. the ones that make it up yeah yeah, that,
3: that's you know that's like any bureaucracy and governments <laughs> can become bureaucracies really quickly is people say well that's the rule and you say but that's you know <laughs> that's the rule that was good for people in 1785 and and conditions are different now. Guess what? Yeah. Rules change. Yeah. Look at professional football; they're always changing the rules. <laughs> right. you know? Or
2: now baseball. Yeah, exactly. Season. Even
3: baseball had to realize we have to change a rule or two, and it will still be baseball.
2: And this America, yeah, baseball apple yeah. pie. Um, well, well, um, John, let's go back to talk about um, your process um, a bit more. And the research that goes into your mm-hmm. process, because at the right before the break, you said this great thing. Where, and okay, speaking of rules, mm-hmm. <laughs> one of your rules is no more than a week on research, mm-hmm. and then you're back to writing for a week. Yeah, yeah.
3: So, so you know, a lot of why I I write screenplays, uh, you know, original screenplays or books is I know enough about a subject. Um, to be fascinated by it, but not enough to feel like I know everything I'm going to learn so and, you're
2: writing to discover
3: yeah and it's a chance to look into something deeper and and, and maybe even change your thinking about it um, because what you find may not be what you expected um, and usually what you, what usually what I find is it's a lot more complex than it was certainly taught to me if it was even taught at all or as as I imagined it. And so one of the things that I'll do is I'll say, OK, well, I'm going to have a chapter and it's in this place. And this is what happens. And let me let me do a week of research about the the kind of overview of what different people have to say about it, including people who are alive then. You know, so, you know, I can read French well enough. So I went back and re- read, you know, accounts by people who went to Martinique from France in 1750, and saw this new thing, great thing, this colony of theirs for the first time, and so they're actually very good witnesses. Um, oh, completely,
2: you know. and their voices. Then you yeah, have and like a sense of there. the rhythm of and, and, and the what's,
3: speech. And what's what's exotic to them you know um it's and not the french language but when they hear the creole people speaking they're saying <laughs> well i think they're speaking french but i can't quite understand and they and you realize well that's partly because the people mostly you know originated in africa a generation or so earlier but also because they don't want you to understand exactly. <laughs> you know? and um and you know so you 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 learn a lot and then i'll write a section and then I'll I'll have a couple blanks you know as oh geez I don't know you know how do you you um you know, uh, load that gun and fire it. And of course, there's 50 guys who are reenactors who's also done things that are on you know uh, the web, and they'll go out and they'll show you and they'll do it and they'll wear their uniforms while they do it. So, um, you know, uh, you can fill in those blanks eventually. And sometimes they really change things. You know, um, some of it's just cr- chronological. So, um, you know, uh, Henry Fielding shows up, the guy who wrote. Uh, um tom jones well before he wrote any of his novels he was a noted satirist who 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 wrote plays that were disturbing enough that they actually changed some laws against satire and you know uh and he was he was a printer of satiric broadsides against the jacobites he was a uh you know dyed in the wool anti-jacobite anti-catholic who later became the chief of police uh, one of the first chiefs of police that London ever had. Well, you know, just chronologically, I realize, okay, he would have had an opinion about what's going on here. But where are we in his career? Oh, it's right when you know his his wife has his first wife has been dead for you know a, a year now. He has two children, and he's about to marry her lady's maid, and you know, which is a bit scandalous. And he needs to make money like crazy.
2: Right.
0: Yeah. You
3: know, so he's he's not only got this kind of a agenda to get out to the public, but he's trying to think of well, this is paying almost nothing. You know, I've got to I've got to do something more long form or whatever. Well, those those holes, you know, they they open up opportunities for you, and then you have to say, does it fit in this book? What does it add to this book? What else could I add to it to make it more germane to the story that I'm telling?
2: Right, and not have it. I mean, it must be not have it just in there. Because it is like these glorious discoveries, right? Where yeah, you're seeing these. I had a I had a great thing life. happen
3: with, with uh, my book, A Moment in the Sun. It turned out that Damon Runyon, you know, this kind of guy who wrote about wise guys on Broadway and you know guys and dolls is based on one of his stories, um, was in the Philippine American War. Um, and his nickname was Runt. And so I, I put him as a character when they get to the Philippines, when they get into Manila. And I got to write a chapter from his point of view in his, in his voice. You know, so it wasn't I wasn't shoehorning him. Okay. He was there. Yeah. And, and so he could be a good witness to a scene between two other major characters um who we we want to know what's happening but you can see it through a third party's eyes and because we know them we know what's happening which is that they're actually faking a boxing match um because they knew each other before and everybody else thinks it's a, dr- a grudge match and they've bet on the one who's going to win
2: and so they can both win they can both financially both yeah
3: yeah and and thus professional wrestling was born
2: right right um for this particular example um, did you was the person run was that person because st- I don't have a good mm-hmm. sense of history timing for this mm-hmm. was that person still alive uh, the, no
3: no I mean Damon Runyon had been dead when I wrote the book that's, he had right, been okay, dead that's what okay for, for, for years because yeah, he,
2: everybody in this one <laughs> <he> <laughs> obviously, is
3: obviously gone. long yeah. gone but yeah. it was be- <laughs> one of the reasons that I write in in um, present tense when I'm doing this historical things. Why? So my last three novels have been somewhat historical, uh, but I write in present tense because I don't want the audience to feel like, yeah, everybody's been dead for 300, 400 years. Why care. Yeah, I care. You know, they're all going (laughs) to die. But if you're in the present with them, you want to know if they could get out of this scrape or not, and you feel like you're there.
2: Yeah, the immediacy of the present tense. Yeah, and that's how you're drafting it, too, then, too.
3: Yeah. And, and, and you know, how you're, you know, you, you talk about the cinematic quality, you know, you, you try to, to make it immersive, whether you're making a movie or, or whatever um, is, well, can I can, you know, with the technology we have today, it's easier to actually, you know, run along with a character right in the middle of a charge in, in, in battle. It used to be oh, okay. We have to lay, you know, a quarter mile of track, and you know, people are going to trip on it, and you know. And now we've got drone cameras and steady cams and things like that. So cinema can be more immersive. Um, and but also, um, that's the point of view. I want I wanted the point of view of of the Battle of Culloden, not from the big wide shot, historical chessboard kind of point of view. I want it from one guy who actually knows what he's doing, but he has no idea if he's going to survive. In five minutes, he could easily be dead.
2: And that's what you can bring to it as the writer, as the maker. Yeah,
3: absolutely. Yeah, you're, you know, as a writer, and and it's cheap if you're writing <laughs> you know if you're making a movie it's more expensive because <laughs> you know there have to be some extras and you know costumes and all that kind of stuff in a crew that's,
2: but that's the work of the novel isn't it John mm-hmm. like that immediacy and bringing in like the character's point of view uh... yeah it,
3: it, it's also one one of the interesting things is people have been asking so you know um, you know does your background you know making movies you know help you visually and I say you as a novelist you have to be so much more visual than you do as a, a film director. As a film director I can say okay it's one of the you know British uh ships that carried you know prisoners from Liverpool to the New World in 1747. You do the research,
2: right? And get production
3: an, designer. Get an
2: approximate ship.
3: Get 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 pictures. Yeah, you know, you bring all that stuff to me, and then we'll build it as a set, or maybe you know, even use a real boat that we we transform a little. From if Cornwall. I'm writing it in a novel, there's a blank page. Yes. I can't just say ship, yeah. you know. Where in the ship is it? What does it look like? How how high is the ceiling? Do do it? Does any light come in? If they're locked in the hold, how many guys are chained together? You know, all that stuff. I have to visualize and pass on to the reader. So, in in a, in a way, you're also the production designer and the art director yeah. when you're writing a novel, and, um, and, and that takes a lot of research and and a lot of um, why am I when am I going to bring this detail in and why am I putting it there? And, you know, does the the reader need a reminder of, oh, right, it smells bad, right. <laughs> you know, and they're up to their ankles and bilge. Oh, yeah, right. that's and right. And what's in that
2: yeah, bilge. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, yeah. Um, it seems, because it seems like when you're, how do you, as a writer, what details are you choosing then to include? Because you say... There's a way of knowing about the character, mm-hmm. and it's not as if you want to go on for pages about. You want it, like you said just a moment you ago. Wanna, you you want to use them it strategically with,
3: with action and yes. character. You yeah. know, so that you're you 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 don't spend two and a half pages setting the scene, which Dickens might have done, um, but writing in the present tense you're not going to do that because that's a dear reader thing. You know, that, that's an omniscient point of view. So you're, you're, you're easing those details in when, you know, okay, if somebody, um, you know, is has to scratch themselves because they have lice, well, if they're shackled to five other men, it's a different thing than if you can just scratch your head, you know. It's you, a
2: bad game of Twister.
3: Yeah, exactly. You may have to say, "We're going to stand up on three. Yeah. When if you're going to go up and get your, you know, 40 minutes on deck to jump around so that you, you know, you don't die before you get there because you're valuable property, you have to say one, two, three, and all stand up at the same time. And if somebody is sick. You have to say to the guy, "You're going to have to unchain him because he's not. We're not carrying him up those yeah, stairs. Yeah,
2: he can't make it. Yeah. yeah, I think it's so interesting, John, that you said that the present tense, in a way, is keeping you honest as a writer.
3: Yeah, it, it, it does keep you. Um, it, or in an it,
2: honest, in a different way. I don't mean yeah, that Dickens it, isn't, it keeps but you in that, in
3: the scene with the character, much more, and you're much less likely to back off and you know talk. You know, and I can do that in other novels, you know, and sometimes it is just something in, in a moment in the sun. sometimes I just, um, I, I would describe a political cartoon and what's going on in it and what the, the you know, and you would figure out the For, you know, for the how symbolism. many pages? It might be no. three pages. <laughs> See, okay. you know, but it's just a political yeah. c- cartoon that I made up in my head from looking at other political cartoons of the time. But the political cartoon tells you something about the time. But it's a break in the action. Oh, it's but... not it's not a character looking at the political cartoon. It's it's like almost an editorial break of, oh, by the way, here's what people are back in the States. Think about what's going on in the Philippines.
2: It's doing work. Yeah.
3: And and it's not what's going on in the Philippines. It's some illustrator who has no idea you know, what's going on in the Philippines, but has maybe their own. Messed up agenda, or the editor's messed up agenda, and so, you know, at at very early on in the Philippine American War, when we were helping them get rid of the the Spanish, they were uh, pictured in cartoons as kind of like little Mexican peons, with big hats and bare feet and all white clothes, uh, to diminish when, them. Well, no, to to, to say oh. we're helping the little brother out. Uh, when we when they said go away, we didn't. Fight the Spanish for you to take over our islands. Exactly, Um, and they were the enemy all of a sudden. Oh, they got they became coal black uh, natives with grass skirts and bones in their noses. You know, carrying yeah wooden spears. Right. Same same illustrator in some cases. You know, so that makes a point of okay, you know what the people back home think of Filipinos is changing because what they're being fed by the media is changing. And, and the media had to be, you know, part of the the story in that particular, you know, book. I mean, it's one of the reasons I include, um, you know, um, both Hogarth, the artist, and Thomas Fielding in this. They're the media, you know, and they're some of how people are understanding, uh, yes. you know, or not understanding, because it's very skewed what they're doing, um, oh, what's going on.
2: Um, oh, that's so interesting, because I was Focusing more on the fact that they were real people in that real time Mm -hmm. and how you were using them instead of thinking of the larger another role. That they would be playing, yeah. which would be yeah. showing that yeah. perspective. Which
3: brings us—you wanted me to read something. And, yes. Uh, one yes. of one of the medium of the of the time that this was written was uh, what the Irish call a shanachie, and so there's a character in it named Lachlan, uh, who is a bard. He's a Scots bard, and his job is in the clan is to make people feel good about themselves. So he's a celebratory, you know, poet, and he improvises. Um In English or in airs uh, what's going on at the moment, and this is a little section where um, they're 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 in chains they're being brought from Scotland to England, and the captain has decided well they're complaining about you know being lousy and they've got bugs crawling on them i'll keel hole a couple of them and see if they like going in the water then and so uh, this this starts out with Lachlan, uh, and I'm going to take my headphones off. So I can put my glasses on. Tollbooth to life, we are marched to our breast, near again to Rome, prowling free. The Duchess of Fife, with poor captives, impressed, set sail and put out to sea. Lachlan is one of the few short enough to stand in the low, stifling compartment, sweating freely in the July heat. The men, demoralized and seasick, Have demanded a verse, and he does not hesitate, Mind racing only a few lines ahead of his tongue. Chained and condemned, and steerage confined, The ship was no sooner unmoored, When a tempest swept down, having made up its mind To drown every man that's aboard. The heavens strained back, ship swamped in the blow, Her crew, fast despairing, did weep. Twas certain it seemed that ah, friend and foe Were fated to rest in the deep. There had been more cursing than weeping above deck, but it was a storm such as none Jamie had encountered, the ship lurching fore and aft, starboard and larboard, cold salt water slapping down upon them through the grate, the sounds of great sails torn loose and flapping, at least one cannon crack as the boom split. But then at once, the wind and the wave, as quick as they rose settled down, and thus we were spared from a watery grave for our necks, all belong to the crown
2: oh, thank you, John. How fun was writing how fun was writing lachlan
3: yeah it's a lot of fun i I got to write some poems and uh uh, odes and things like that. And uh, every once in a while, I, I'd realize I need a little more meter and a little more form for this. So there's at least one in here that's based on Casey at the bat. Um, you, know, you just kind of <laughs> replace the words and tell the story that he's telling. <laughs> Um, but he's he's also trying to survive, and so eventually, when they come to the new world, and he happens to be captured by the Shawnee people, um, and he realizes I'm this puny little guy, They're, they'll 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 kill me for sure. And he realizes, oh, their their storyteller is getting very very old. Maybe I can learn their language and learn their stories and be their historian and even learn their language well enough to, to make up verses in their language and praise the main chief. Um, and, they're you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, European directors who fled from the Nazis and came over to Hollywood and, you know, learned English and, uh-huh. you know, ended up directing and, you know, for MGM or whatever.
2: It's It's so it's actually just so interesting and wonderful to he- get this chance and thank you for talking to everyone, for everyone, all the listeners out there on Living Writers, to talk about these characters who you can tell are so, I feel like they're they're alive when you're reading your prose mm-hmm. and they're alive again here in a different way as you speak about them, John. So yeah, thank you, you for your...
3: Yeah, you you do hear from a lot of writers this thing of the, the uh, eventually the characters have a life of their own and... Um,
2: Eventually, they do. And you've, you've given them a good one you've, and a, respect, a respectful one. And that's what mm-hmm. it seems like. this the, um, Thanks so much, John, John Sales, today on Living Writers. Thanks, T. Jamie McGillivray, The Renegade's Journey. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
4: Welcome to the Daily Sports Report on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor here on Wednesday, April 19th. My name is Jake Singer and I'm joined by Reagan Dufresne today. Reagan just coming back right here in the booth, but we have a really fun one on top for you all. I said yesterday that it was going to be my last show of the semester, but I came back to do a last minute show with Reagan. Reagan, how are you doing today? Doing great. Glad to be here. Good to be back here. Couldn't make it yesterday. Now I'm here. Awesome. Well, we have a really fun one on tap for you all. Reagan and I are going to do a full mock draft. Our final mock draft of this season, the NFL draft, is next Thursday. So we are almost a week away from the NFL draft. This mock draft Reagan and I are going to do is our most official one. We've done a lot of research into this one. We have actually a lot of fun trades for you all too. So just to make sure we maximize all of our time, let's get started, Reagan. I'm going to do the the odd teams. You're going to do the even teams if I'm correct? That is correct. All right, great. Let's get started. So with the first overall pick... Carolina Panthers on the clock. They already they traded up for this pick a little while ago, and we're going to take Bryce Young with this pick, the quarterback out of Alabama. He is the consensus number one overall pick. I believe he will go to the Carolina Panthers, so let's lock that one in, Reagan. Second pick on the clock, Houston Texans, and tell me, what's going on with the Texans, Reagan? Yeah, so we're uh, walking over here with a lot of deliberation. I think we're going to go have the Tennessee Titans move up a little bit. Um, the, a lot of teams looking for quarterbacks, and we think that they're going to move up around here. They're going to give up the number 11 pick in this draft, the uh, second-round pick that they own, and next year's first-round pick. And uh, they're going to swap with the Houston Texans, who we think are going to stick with Davis Mills, possibly for the remainder of the next next season at least. And with this pick, the Titans are going to go ahead and select Anthony Richardson. Uh, again, a lot of deliberation on which specific pick, but we think that Richardson's the one that the Titans really like. And um, they don't exactly... Uh, They're not exactly in a win now type of situation, so they can